The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 74, a plea for relief from oppressors. A contemplation of Asaph. O God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes against the thick trees. And now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them all together. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. O God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. You broke open the fountain and the flood. You dried up mighty rivers. The day is yours. The night also is yours. Where was I? Oh, yes. 16. The night also is yours. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have set all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, that the enemy is reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. Oh, do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have respect to the covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Oh, do not let the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, plead your own cause. Remember how foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those who rise up against you increases continuously. Okay, we're in Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 through 11. This is titled, The First of the Fruit. And it shall be... When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall go to the one who is priest in those days and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, 
My father was a Syrian about to perish, and he went down to Egypt and dwelt there, few in number. And there he became a nation great, mighty, and populous. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. Then we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice, and looked on our affliction, and our labor, and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Lord, have given me. Then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you and your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. I remember the first time I read that passage, or the first time I remember reading that passage, because I read the Bible when I was a kid, but the first time I read that passage and I was thinking about it, I remember thinking what a special passage this is, and I never thought that someday I'd be preaching on it. A friend of mine emailed me a few days before typing this sermon and found the words of a Christian author that he normally liked hard to understand. He was sure that the guy taught eternal salvation, but he wasn't thinking on what the guy was saying in one particular point. The author is A.W. Tozer, and he said, We are saved by accepting Christ as our Savior. We are sanctified by accepting Christ as our Lord. We may do the first without doing the second. What a tragedy that in our day we often hear the gospel appeal made in this way. Come to Jesus. You do not have to obey anyone. You do not have to give up anything. Just come to him and believe in him as Savior. The fact that we hear this everywhere does not make it right. To urge men and women to believe in a divided Christ is bad teaching for no one can receive a half or a third or a quarter of the divine person of Christ. Tozer is right, but it does not negate that some people are saved and are not obedient to Christ. Belief in the gospel is what saves. Obedience to Christ comes at a different level for every person who has ever been saved. My response was, one, we are saved by believing the gospel. It is done. That's in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, and Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, and so on. Two, after salvation, we should live as if we are saved because Christ is our Lord. That's Ephesians 4, 1, 1 Thessalonians 2, 12, and so on. I concluded the email with the words, when we don't believe the gospel, we have not been saved. When we are saved and don't live for Christ as Lord, we are not being obedient to the word. With that understood, we will talk about confessing Jesus as Lord today. That is a different issue than being obedient to Jesus as Lord. One is referring to his deity. Jesus is Lord, Jehovah. The other is referring to his position of authority over us. Jesus is Lord, meaning master over us. It's an important distinction because people tend to both under and overthink Romans 10, 9, and 10. As such, they misunderstand what Paul is saying, and they can get off on some odd tangents in doing so. Our text verse comes from Isaiah 52. It is verse 10. 
The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The words of Isaiah are relevant to today's passage as well. The arm of the Lord signifies what the Lord is reaching out to do. In the end, what God does in Christ is what the Lord is reaching out to do. Keep that in mind. As far as our passage today, one of the verses refers to a confession made about the Israelites' father. One clause of that verse is quite widely translated, and I thought I'd give you a few of the different possibilities as to what is being said. My father was a wandering Aramean. That's the NIV. My father was a Syrian about to perish. That's the New King James Version. My father was led to Aram. That's the Aramaic Bible. My father abandoned Syria. That's the Brenton Septuagint. My ancestor was homeless and Aramean. That's the CEV. The Syrian pursued my father. That's the Dewey Rhymes. My ancestor was a wandering Aramean. That's the GNT. My ancestors were wandering Arameans, the GWT. These and several other possibilities have been given for this clause. The Hebrew is just three words, and yet there is this much disagreement on what is being conveyed. If you ever wonder why translations vary so much, it is because the Bible is a big, complicated book. Not only the words themselves have to be evaluated, but what the words may be referring to do as well. Remember this as you do your studies, and don't just go with the first translation. And also, don't just go with the first commentary. There is a lot involved in what the Bible is telling us. If we can have such a divergence on three seemingly simple words, just imagine how difficult the greater doctrine set forth in the word can be argued over. Hence, we have eight billion different denominations, all claiming they have the answer. Be careful what you accept and be sure to have the basics right. We will see the very basic of the basics, the first of the fruit of our life in the Lord referred to in today's passage. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is, I declare today to the Lord. It's verses 1 through 11. Verse 1, and it shall be when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you. The words of this first verse are not unlike many other verses already seen in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In Leviticus and Numbers, the Lord repeats the words in the first person again and again. Numbers 15, 2, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you have come into the land you are to inherit, which I am giving you. That's the Lord speaking to Israel. Moses gives the same general thought in Deuteronomy 18, verse 9, stating it in the third person. When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. Introducing this expression at the beginning of the chapter sets the tone for everything that follows. Israel is not yet in Canaan, and yet they are promised that they will enter the land, a land being given to them by the Lord. They were brought out of bondage, they were given the law, they were conducted to the door of Canaan, and yet they faithlessly turned away from it. They were sentenced to exile in the wilderness because of their faithlessness, and yet they have been cared for by the Lord through the many years of exile for disobedience. Now, 
At the end of their time of exile, right on the banks of the Jordan, they are promised they will, in fact, enter the land. The inheritance was promised to their fathers and to them. They will possess the land, and the Lord will see them through to the satisfactory completion of his promise. In this, and because it's been a while since the typology has been considered, all of what has occurred has been a picture of Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ. In Numbers chapter 14, Israel refused to enter Canaan. It was a very, very clear picture of Israel's rejection of Jesus. Does anybody remember that sermon? It was very clear. From there, they were led into exile in the wilderness. All of that time in the wilderness has been typical of Israel's exile over the past 2,000 years. Does anybody remember when they were walking in the desert? They're wandering along and people started getting bit by snakes, what they had to do in order to be saved. Look at the snake on the pole. It's a picture of Israel in their exile for the past 2,000 years. If any of them will simply look to the cross in faith, they will be saved. Everything we have been seeing over these past many chapters since Numbers 14 has been Israel's rejection of Jesus and God bringing them along through their time of exile under the Romans, under the nations for the past 2,000 years. Now they are back at the shores of the Jordan. And guess what? God has got them back in the land of Israel today and he's preparing them for meeting their Messiah. We'll go on. And just as he brought Israel through the years of wandering to the door of Canaan once again, so he has brought Israel back to the land in preparation of their coming to their Messiah. Through their constant faithlessness toward the Lord, he has remained steadfastly faithful to Israel, both in the historical account recorded in the Pentateuch and in the historical account of their time since the Roman exile. The words now spoken by Moses are reminding them that entrance into the promise is not because of anything they have done. Rather, it is based on the granting of it by the Lord, and it shall be when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you. It will be the land given, verse 1 continues, as an inheritance. Nahala, inheritance. One inherits an inheritance. Thus it is given by another, and it is not earned. This is the state of the land in which the Israelite is to live, and it is in this state and from this reference point that the right to be explained is mandated. As for Israel as a nation, they have not yet come to Christ, who is the anticipated true inheritance. He is what Canaan only anticipates. That life is still ahead of them. Someday they will enter, just as Moses says Israel will enter. It is this time that is being anticipated. Understanding this, Moses says, verse 1 continues, and you possess it and dwell in it. And you possess and you dwell in it. Again, Moses speaks of these things as a certainty. They shall inherit the land, they shall possess it, and they shall dwell in it. For Israel on the banks of the Jordan, the anticipation is Canaan. But for Israel without Christ, the anticipation and the promise is Christ. As surely as they rejected God's offer and turned from Canaan, they rejected God's offer and turned from Christ. And as surely as they will enter Canaan, they will someday accept Christ. The denial of both Jews who still reject, and of course many curse his name, as well as the denial of those in the church who say God is finished with Israel, are both denials that ignore the typology clearly seen in the words of Moses. But more, they reject the words of the prophets, and they continue to reject the words of the apostles and of Jesus himself, 
that assure us that reconciliation is yet ahead for Israel. Regardless of that, the typology is set, the promises will come to pass, and Israel will both enter Canaan as stated by Moses, and they will come to Christ as is noted in Scripture. As such, Moses has a word for the people when they enter and they possess the land. It is, verse 2, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground, and you shall take from first all fruit the ground. Because of the use of from, the words are a bit confusing. This is not referring to the feast of first fruits, but rather of the first of all of the produce. In Exodus 23, we read the following. Three times a year you shall keep feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Aviv. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvests, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field. And the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you have gathered the fruit of your labors from the field. That is then further defined, saying, Exodus 23, 19, The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. The bikurim, or first fruits, signifies the first of the harvest cycle, and it is the time when the second pilgrim feast was conducted. Of that harvest of first fruits, a portion was presented to the Lord. That is the Roshit Bikurei, or the first of the first fruits. It is that and any other firsts that are certainly referred to here. In other words, that was one harvest, but there will be harvests of barley, wheat, figs, grapes, olives, pomegranates, and whatever else is grown by the people. Deuteronomy 8 verse 8 gives a good summary of these things. But these firsts would also include that of the fleece of the sheep as well. That was stated in chapter 18. There it said, The first fruits of your grain and your new wine and your oil and the first of the fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand to minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. The first from each of these, whatever they may be, was to be brought forward. Verse 2 continues, Which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. The repetition concerning the land is not unnecessary. It is an added reminder that not only did he give them the land, but he also is the one who gives them what comes from the ground in the land. Therefore, just as he can give them the land and remove them from it, he can also provide from the ground or withhold what comes from it. They will be explicitly reminded of this in minute detail in chapter 28, which I've been typing for the past six weeks. I've got one more sermon. Deuteronomy 28 is a very long chapter. It's the blessings and the curses, and it's going to be seven sermons long. As this is so, they are obligated to give of the first of the fruits that come from the ground. No amount is stated. And thus it is according to the generosity of the heart of the giver to decide. Whatever amount it is, they are to collect it, verse 2 continues, and put it in a basket. Here is a new and rare word, tene. It signifies a basket coming from a root probably meaning to weave. Thus it is a woven basket of willows or the like. It will be seen four times between now and Deuteronomy 28, verse 7. Verse 2 continues, and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. In other words, the presentation is to be brought to the place of the tabernacle at the times of the pilgrim feasts. 
This would probably be something that happened at all three of the feasts, bringing forth whatever crop came ripe at that time. Verse 3, and you shall go to the one who is priest in those days. This simply refers to whatever priest is on duty at the time, be it the high priest or whatever priest is in attendance. The number of people coming to the pilgrim feasts would make it impossible for the high priest alone to meet and then accept the offering of every family that came in. Thus, they were to come to one of the priests, verse 3 continues, and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God. The word nagad is used. It is variously translated as declare, profess, acknowledge, testify, show, and so on. It is a general word that gives the sense of to be conspicuous. One might say, I openly proclaim today. In saying today, it has been passed on that this proclamation would be made only once a year. That does not logically follow, and it doesn't go along with the rest of Deuteronomy either. If one is to bring the first of the fruits, it would be much more logical for them to be presented as they became ripe. Further, Moses says, no one is to come before me empty-handed. I said that a few minutes ago. They are bringing it as it comes ripe. Hence, one would expect this to be done at each pilgrim feast, despite what Jewish commentators state. By saying, le Yehovah Elohecha, or to Yehovah your God, it is demonstrating that the priest is acknowledged as the mediator between the people and the Lord. The profession is to be a constant reminder before the Lord. As such, he is to then say, verse 3 continues, that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. The Hebrew more specifically says, swore to our fathers to give to us. It is not to all of Israel, but that a particular generation would receive the promise. The rest could only anticipate what these people standing before the priest would actually receive. Thus, in saying this, and in providing the fruit at this time, it is a tangible proof that the Lord had fulfilled his oath. The Lord had sworn, and the Lord had fulfilled. And more, the presentation of the fruit not only proved they possessed the land, but that the land was productive and fruitful. Therefore, it is to be understood by them that even the fruit from the land, meaning their continued existence, was from the hand of the Lord. The presentation was to then be considered an offering of both thanks and praise for what it represented in the greater harvest that they had received. Whatever work they did to bring forth the fruit was only possible because they had been given the land, and the land itself was productive enough to bring forth from their labors. This is all tied up in the presentation of the fruit. As such, verse 4, then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. The priest, as the mediator, takes the offering and transfers it to the place before the altar, meaning the altar of sacrifice in the courtyard. Thus, the offering is considered as a sacrifice. In placing it before the altar, it is then representative of having been received by the Lord. As such, an acknowledgment of the Lord's hand in this is to be proclaimed. Verse 5, and you shall answer and say before the Lord your God. The translation is right. Answer and say. The first statement was made. The basket was taken from the hands and placed before the altar. It is as if the Lord, through the priest, has said, I accept your offering. With that accomplished, the person responds to the acceptance of the offering, saying, Verse 5 continues, My father was a Syrian about to perish. These are the words we looked at at the beginning of the sermon. 
Arami Oved Avi, Aramean wandering my father. Translating as Syrian is for our benefit. Although there are several unique ways of translating these words, the reference is surely to Jacob. He was born in Canaan, but he was not a Canaanite. Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldeans and thus considered under Syria. And more, his mother Rebekah was an Aramean. He also lived for 20 years in Padan Aram. His wives were from there and his children were then reckoned as such as well. Concerning the word avad, it can mean perishing or wandering, as in a lost animal, and so on. If perishing is intended, that would indicate the many times in his life when his existence was threatened, such as when Esau was of a mind to kill him, when he toiled under his father-in-law, Laban, when he feared being killed by the Shechemites of Canaan in Genesis 34, and when the great famine which caused them to go down to Egypt occurred. If wandering is intended... It is because he owned none of his own land, but remained a nomad and a pilgrim throughout his entire life. As the word signifies both thoughts, it is probably intended to mean both as a pun. He was perishing and a wandering Aramean. The reason for this is because of the proclamation now being made by the presenter of the fruits. He is neither perishing nor is he wandering. He has both a possession and he has abundance, testified to by this full basket being presented to the Lord. What the Lord promised this Aramean in his humbled state has been realized for his descendants. Verse 5 continues, And he went down to Egypt and dwelt there, few in number. Again, both thoughts, perishing and wandering, fit the narrative here. There was no food in Canaan, and they thus wandered from Canaan to Egypt. There was nothing firm or stable in their existence, and they were a small clan, as Jacob himself acknowledged in Genesis 34, verse 30. The family number at the time of entering Egypt was 70 souls. Verse 5 continues, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. That was recorded first in Exodus 1, verse 7. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. But in their massive growth, affliction, not prosperity, resulted. Verse 6, but the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. Again, it is seen in Exodus chapter 1. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pitom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Each thing that is being answered by the presenter of the basket is to remind him of his own state before the Lord. This is where I have come from, and without the Lord, this is where I, as an Israelite, would still be. Such is evidenced in the next words. Verse 7, Then we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. 
This is referring to the words of Exodus 2 and 3 and elsewhere. From Exodus 2, now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard the groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. And then it says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. In their affliction, labor, and oppression, the Lord heard their cry and acted accordingly, demonstrating his power and sovereign authority over Egypt. As Moses says, verse 8, So the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And brought us out, Jehovah, from Egypt. Israel was in bondage. Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord brought Israel forth from the bondage of Egypt. Verse 8 continues, with a mighty hand, beyad hazakah, in hand mighty. It is the same words spoken to Moses in Exodus 6, verse 1. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. It speaks of the Lord's effectual power to accomplish what was necessary to bring the mighty nation of Egypt to its knees in order to bring about the release of Israel. Verse 8 going on, and with an outstretched arm, and in arm outstretched. Again, it is a repeat of Exodus 6 verse 6. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from the bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. This speaks of the effectual reach of the Lord to accomplish the delivery. When a man desires to show his strength or to defeat an enemy, he will stretch his arms out. In this one stance, he will both defend some and work against others. Verse 8 continues with great terror. Ube moragadol. And in terror, great. The effects of the Lord's powerful workings against Egypt can only be described as terrifying. Verse 8 continues, and with signs. Ube otot, and in signs. The otot, or signs, are things given to represent something else. The Lord gave Moses three signs to give to Israel. The rod which turned into a snake, the leprous hand, and the water which turned to blood. He also gave signs to Pharaoh concerning what would come upon them as the Lord accomplished his work. And also, verse 8 continues, and wonders, ube moftim, and in wonders. The mofet, or wonder, comes from yafa, meaning beautiful. Thus it speaks of that which is conspicuous and amazing. The word wonders gives us the right sense. It speaks of the plagues which came upon the land. And yet, it also speaks of the fact that Israel was spared at the same time. While Egypt was destroyed, Israel survived through the plagues. Each time it was a wonder in itself. 
the Lord fought the battles. It was his strength that worked against Egypt. It was his reach that devastated them while Israel remained safe. And it was his actions that brought terror upon the foe. The words of this verse are a general summary of what occurred in the time of the plagues upon Egypt and during the Exodus from there. They are a close repeat of Moses' words of Deuteronomy 4, verse 34. Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, by great terrors, according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? And in bringing Israel out of Egypt, the Lord safely conducted Israel through the many years of disobedience, right to the shores of the Jordan. As such, he is next to acknowledge, verse 9, he has brought us to this place and has given us this land. In acknowledging the Lord's power over Egypt, it is an acknowledgement that their possession of the land was only because of the Lord. There would have been no exodus without the effectual working of the Lord's power, and there would thus be no land for Israel to receive the abundance from what they now possessed. Everything is tied up in what the Lord has done and what the Lord has given them. It is, verse 9 continues, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the third of six times this particular phrase is used in the book of Deuteronomy. This time, speaking as if he were an Israelite standing before the Lord. The abundance and blessings are realized and confirmed in his words. The word for land is Eretz. It speaks of the land as a whole, of which he is a partaker of. Jacob was a wandering and ready to perish Aramean, and this Israelite now avows that he is the recipient of a land of fertility, all because of the Lord's care of him. In acknowledgment of that, verse 10, And now, behold, I have brought the firstfruits of the land which you, O Lord, have given me. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruit. As in verse 2, it is not the bikurim, or first fruits, but the first fruit. Unless the distinction is made, actual points of theology concerning Christ can be easily confused. This is the first ripe fruit of whatever the land produces. As such, the Israelite is standing before the Lord acknowledging that point. For it to not be what is claimed would then be tantamount to lying to the Lord. Also, the word translated as land here is the same as in verse 2, ha-adama. It should be translated as the ground. It is what the ground produces that is being referred to. Verse 10 continues, then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall set it before the Lord your God. What happens here seems confusing. In verse 4, it said that the priest was to take the basket out of the hand of the offerer and then place it before the altar. Since then, nothing has been said of the basket, and yet it says he is to set it before the Lord. Some take this as the priest setting the basket before the altar, signifying it is a sacrifice to the Lord. From there, it was then returned to the offerer, who would then make his proclamation before the Lord over the sacrifice. After that is done, he then sets the basket before the Lord, meaning it is the priest portion who is the representative of the Lord. Others see this as simply a continuation of verse 4, but that doesn't seem to fit because the priest is said to have taken the basket. Rather than the word then, which is used in verse 4 and verse 10, both times it simply says 
and. What may be the case is that the words, and you shall set it before the Lord your God, are speaking of the entire process. One might paraphrase it for understanding as, this is how you are to set it before the Lord your God. While that is being accomplished, he is also bowing and making his proclamation here called worship. The whole process then is summed up in this verse. It is one act of presentation that includes bowing as it is conducted. When this is complete, Moses says, verse 11 finishes with, so you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you and your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. That's another clue as this is occurring during the pilgrim feasts because that same phrase is repeated every time during all three of the pilgrim feasts by Moses. So this is what's going on. And the reason why I'm so meticulous about this is because otherwise you've got a false impression of what is going on in the biblical narrative. And it actually affects what you believe about your Christian theology. You'll see that in a little while. This builds upon what has already been said several times in Deuteronomy, such as, There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and your female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion nor inheritance with you. In other words, this is a part of the same process that is referred to for each of the pilgrim feasts. Though it is mentioned later, This is an integral part of what the people were to do at such a feast. Once this rite is complete and the first of the fruit has been presented, only then would the people go about eating their tithes, offerings, and rejoicing before the Lord. There would be relaxing, eating of meat, drinking of wine, feasting, and celebration. There would be meeting up with old friends and making new ones. The intent of the pilgrim feasts was for the people to rest in the presence of the Lord, acknowledge his goodness towards them, and to praise him for each and every blessing that they had received. The annual marking of these pilgrim feasts was a rite that was only failingly observed by the people. And even when they were observed, they were quickly forgotten again. As such, the words of Jeremiah, words that closely mirror much of our passage today, speak of the judgment upon the people for their failings. Here's what it says, Jeremiah 32. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. You show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them, the great, the mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. You are great in counsel and mighty in work, for your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day, and in Israel, and among other men, and you have made yourself a name as it is this day. You have brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror. You have given them this land of which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they came in and took possession of it. But they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. Now, whether you accept the premise that America is established by God or not, you should accept the premise that everything that you have in your life came from God. 
and you should be grateful for every single thing that comes from the hand of the Lord. And if you're not doing that, you're just as guilty as what Jeremiah just said about his own people, Israel. Be thankful for what the Lord has given you. Remember, when you pick fruit from your garden or from the tree in your yard, to thank the Lord for it. Every single thing that you have came from the hand of the Lord, and nothing came apart from it. What will I proclaim? What will I profess? What will I declare to the Lord my God? Is there an exalted name, one I can confess, one that the heavenly host will applaud? And when I make my solemn profession, will it be about something I have done? Or will my mouse holy confession be about what God had done in Christ, his son? It is he who brought about the victory for us. And so it is his name alone that I will confess. I shall proclaim the Lord is Jesus. Yes, this is what my mouth shall profess. Our second thought today is life in Christ. Like the feasts of the Lord, because this is a part of the conduct of those feasts, the passage today looks to life in Christ. The land the Lord promised is typical of our life in Christ. Israel was given the land, the church is given Christ. Israel was to inherit the land, Christ is our inheritance. Paul speaks of life in Christ as such. He says in Galatians 3, For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Paul shows that the inheritance is of God and it is not obtained through works of the law. As we noted, one inherits an inheritance. Thus, it is given by another. It is not earned. Further, Paul expressly states that the inheritance is obtained already by faith in Christ. It is also something promised with a guarantee in Christ. From Ephesians 1, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. He said, in the first sentence, we have our inheritance. Now he says this is a guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. It is the guarantee that fulfills the words of our passage today. And you possess it and dwell in it. We even now possess the inheritance and we have obtained the inheritance, even if it is not realized in us yet. In this state, we see a reflection of Paul's words of Romans 10 in the next verses. The Israelite is told to take the first of every fruit and put them in a basket and take them to where the Lord is. Good fruit in the New Testament is that which is pleasing to the Lord. It is the outworking of the faith that is possessed. What is the first of the fruit of the Lord? It is to acknowledge the Lord. As we saw in the passage today, the word nagad was used. It is variously translated as declare, profess, acknowledge, testify, show, and so on. It is a general word that gives a sense of to be conspicuous. One might say, I openly proclaim today. The first of the fruit of our salvation is what Paul refers to in Romans chapter 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. People try to claim that confessing is a work and that Paul has it all wrong. That is nonsense. 
as is seen right here in the book of Deuteronomy. It is an acknowledgement of the work of the Lord, an open declaration, just as Israel was to declare Le Yehovah Elohecha, or to Yehovah your God, the Christian is to profess the Lord Jesus. The priest of Israel was the mediator who only anticipated Christ the Lord, our mediator. What do you think was on Paul's mind when he was writing Romans 10, 9, and 10? I guarantee you it was this passage that we're looking at from Deuteronomy right now. With the profession made by the Israelite, the priest was to take the basket and set it before the altar of sacrifice. That is typical of our profession of Christ, acknowledging him as our sacrifice. I was born of Adam. Like him, I am set to perish and to wander until my days are ended. In that state, I was in Egypt, in the bondage of sin. But as the redeemed of the Lord, we called out in our agony. And you looked on our affliction and delivered us. Does anybody remember that day in his life or her life? The day that you said, I've realized that I need Christ. I'm in Egypt. I'm in sin. I'm in agony. And I need the Lord to redeem me. This is all implied in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ rose. He did all of the work with his mighty hand, meaning his effectual power to accomplish what was necessary to redeem us from the devil and by his outstretched arm, which is his effectual reach to accomplish the delivery. He stretched out his arm. He died on the cross. He accomplished the victory. In him, death is defeated. He worked against the powers of darkness and he worked for his people. This is what is being pictured in the passage today, a reminder of a person's first moments in Christ. How can anyone say that to confess the Lord is a work? Who can but confess the Lord? He did the work. We're simply asked to acknowledge that. Confession is more than audible words which occur with the mouth. To confess is almost synonymous with the word to profess. However, one can confess a lie. One can only profess the truth. The audible confession stands because of the inward profession. This is why Paul says in Romans 8 that the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. It is as close to us as the air which enters and exits our mouth and fills our lungs. And it is both audible in tone and it is truthful to the heart. The reason for the audible profession is obvious. No one would hide their true belief in the lordship of Jesus. If he is in fact Lord, then he's alive. If he's alive, then he triumphed over the cross. If he did this, then he was without sin because the wages of sin is death. If he is without sin, then he is God because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. As you can see, by logically thinking this through, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, being the God-man, is inextricably tied up in the confession of the Lord Jesus. One cannot deny his lordship, meaning his deity, and be saved. This is the heart of what God has done in the stream of time for the redemption of mankind. I'll stop right there and I'll tell you this. I got my house. I've never done this before in my life, ever. I got my house pressure washed this past week, okay? 
The reason why I did that is because there's mold all over it. The summer is over and I just needed to get it done and I don't have the time to do it anymore. So I had somebody that some of you know come out and pressure wash my house. And on his truck, on both sides and all over it are things about Jesus. And there's a big gospel presentation in the window on the side of his truck. And the first thing it says is, Jesus is God. He understands that if you deny that, then you are not a saved person. I don't care if you say Jesus is Savior or not. If you don't believe he is God, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, you've missed the game. He got that right. And he's letting you know. He's not saying it's a part of the gospel. He's saying that it's a fact that the gospel depends on. And that's what we're seeing right here. Therefore, confession with your mouth is the making of an open profession that Jesus is God, thus denying all other gods. One must make the confession, which is a true profession, as is seen in the words, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Paul directly ties the resurrection to Jesus' lordship. One cannot honestly call on a dead savior, and so acknowledging his resurrection returns us to the thought that he was sinless in his life and death. The priest taking the basket out of the hand of the Israelite is also a picture of Christ's deity. Just as the first of the fruit of Israel was taken by the priest and placed it before the altar of the Lord your God, meaning the altar of sacrifice, the first of the fruit of the believer is taken by Christ, our mediator, who places it before the altar of the Lord, meaning his own sacrifice. Everything is tied up in what Christ Jesus has done. Everything. With that understood... The passage ended with the thought of rejoicing in every good thing that the Lord has given to the person and to his house, and which is to also include the Levite and the stranger who is among you. The entire thought is beautifully reflected in the words of our closing verse today. For now, let each of us be thankful for what God has done. We were wandering through life. We were perishing and destined for a bad end. We were kept in the shackles of sin, and it is Christ who delivered us from those things. By his mighty hand and by his outstretched arm, we have been brought home to God's heavenly inheritance. Praise God for Jesus. Let us rejoice in this. Let us be grateful to God for this. And let us now and forever magnify that great and exalted name, which is above every name. Let us exalt Jesus. I mean, how wonderful is this passage? I read that all these years, and I never realized the connection to the New Testament. I've read it 50 or 100 times probably. I never realized it until I did this sermon. And it is so precious what God has done. And what do you think Paul is writing about? His only scripture is the Old Testament. He's not making stuff up. He's taking his knowledge as a Pharisee, which is why he was picked to be an apostle. And he's giving us that knowledge so that we can understand what the Jews could already understand. They already had the scriptures. They needed a trained person in the word to convey the message to the Gentiles. It's the same message, Jew and Gentile, but we needed somebody to explain it to us. The Jews didn't need that. They went down there every year and did exactly what we're seeing here. But when he says, go and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, this is what's on his mind. And we all need to have that in our heart. And I'm talking to the people that aren't saved that might be listening right now. That is what must be in your heart. It can't be just, oh yeah, I believe Jesus is God and saying it and then it's done. No, you have to believe it in your heart. What's here has to come out here. And if it's true, it will come out here. And then as A.W. Tozer said at the beginning, don't live for a divided Christ. 
Now you're saved. Go and live your life for Christ in the way that he has told you to. This is what's important about following up on your salvation is getting into the word and understanding what God is telling you to do. That is what we're supposed to do. Don't live a divided Christ. It can happen. People can be saved. I've given this example a million times and I have people argue against it. No, of course you can lose your salvation. Think of this. Our friend Bray is about to go into the forest of Papua New Guinea. He's been delayed a few times, but eventually he's going to go in and he's going to be given a group to evangelize. And when Ray and his wife and their children are there and he evangelizes them and some of them come to Christ, they're saved. Everybody got that? Hope this doesn't happen, but I'm going to give you an example. The next town comes over and hears they're in a jungle. They hear that these people have given up on their superstitious gods and they come in and they kill Ray and Jess and the children. Could happen. Five years later, the Mormons come in and they say, we want to tell you about God. Those people that were saved, do you think that if they start attending a Mormon church are going to be unsaved by God? No. All they had was a word without any Bible beyond that. That's all they had. They believe that message and God is not going to say, okay, you're attending a Mormon church. It's time for you to go unsaved. However, the rest of the people in that village that hear the Mormon message will never be saved. There's a difference between both of them sitting right there. These people accepted the true gospel and they will be saved. The rest of them, I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. There's one gospel message and if you accept it, you are saved. And that is what we're told to do after that is to live for Christ. And you can't do it unless you know the word of God. Please learn the word of God. Our closing verse comes from Hebrews 13. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. Isn't that what they were doing down there? Sacrifice. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to him. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Okay, what did he do? He took the thing and he put it down at the altar. That makes it a sacrifice. The fruit of our lips. Next week is Deuteronomy 26, 12 through 19. Properly explaining these words will leave many pastors arriving. It's entitled the third year, the year of tithing. That'll be our 74th Deuteronomy sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, before I give you the poem, and before I even ask you a question, I'd like to tell you now, in case you just sleep in next week and you don't make it to church, that next week's sermon, I can sum it up in one sentence, actually in two words. No tithing, okay? <laughs> this is a New Testament church. We don't do that here. You want to do tithing? You can go to some other church because that's where they do tithing is some other church. All right. I got another one from Chuck and Karen here. They sent these to us and now here they are. This is a different, the last week was red. I don't know the difference in the fruit, but this one is green. Lind Fruit Farm Homemade Apple Butter. No granulated sugar added. The cutest thing happened while I was standing up here last week and the people were coming by for communion. Jack bent over to me and he said, apple butter has no butter. <laughs> so just so you know, this doesn't have butter in it. It's apple butter. That's what it's called, but it does not have butter. Okay. 
I got a question for you. I, I've tried to make this as easy as possible. So if you know and I don't finish, just yell it out. What prompted Daniel to pray to the Lord concerning the restoration of the people to the land of Israel in Daniel chapter 9? Right there at the beginning of Daniel. Everybody knows Daniel 9. Come on, it's the 77s. What prompted him to start making his prayer? He realized the timing. You get apple butter. 70 years it has been. He read the words of prophecy. He was reading scripture, and it said 70 years, the desolations of Israel. And he said, it's time. It's time. And he got on his knees before the Lord, his face, and he started to pray. You get apple butter today. You get Lind apple butter. See, I need to take that job at, at the, yeah, I need to replace Vanna White. Okay, this is entitled The First of the Fruit. Not a chance, he says. Listen, this, this spirit will get me a lot of places, buddy. Okay, and it shall be when you come into the land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance all around, and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground, which you shall bring from your land, that the Lord your God is giving you where you will reside, and put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall go to the one who is priest in those days and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God thus, that I have come to the country, which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God with an acknowledging nod, my father was a Syrian about to perish and he went down to Egypt and dwelt there few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. So you shall declare. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. Then we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers, calling out our confession. And the Lord heard our voice, and looked on our affliction, and our labor, and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand after our Egyptian plunders, and with an outstretched arm, with great terror, and with signs and wonders. He has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land in my hand, which you, O Lord, have given me. Then you shall set it, the Lord your God, before and worship before the Lord your God, worship and praise and so much more. So you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you and your house you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you, and be sure to bring along your spouse. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this marvelous piece of wisdom and literature that came from Moses by inspiration from you and that has been transmitted down the many, many centuries to arrive in our laps where we can see the sure progression of what is going on in redemptive history, one stage after another, through the hands of Paul, through his explanation of how Christ fulfilled what we read today and how we are to respond in like manner. 
Thank you for this precious and beautiful word. Oh, God, it is everything that we need to live properly in your presence. And so help us to do so, to read it, to live by it, and to also share it with others so that they can have the same glorious hope that we possess. We pray this to your glory, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.